0: 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 17. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble but anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the father I write to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever.
1: Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we get to read it today. And We do pray that as we read it, you would help us to know that we have eternal life. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a a difference between knowing something and knowing that you know something. There's a difference between knowing something and knowing that you know something. If you think about an exam situation, if you were going to go and sit an exam, if you know the answers to the questions that are gonna be asked, if you know the content, then you will pass that exam regardless of how you feel about it. Uh, Even if you're nervous, even if you're anxious, If you know the answers, then you will pass. But knowing that you know the answers will have a very profound effect on you, won't it? Uh, Knowing ahead of time that you know takes the pressure off. You can actually feel relaxed and at peace going into that exam if you know that you know. Uh, For me, I was never better prepared for any exam in my life than my Year 12 HSC exams. I studied the hardest I have ever studied in my life for those exams and I strolled into those exams uh, confident, perhaps to the point of arrogance, that I was able to quote the textbook in all of the subjects uh, that I was sitting an exam for. I knew I was going to do well in those exams and so I wasn't stressed at all. I was actually looking forward to the exams, strange as that might seem. But by contrast, Every exam that I took at university, uh, I never once (laughs) walked into those exams with anything remotely close to arrogance, let alone confidence. Uh, I never once went in knowing that I knew what I needed to know. Uh, Instead, I'd been cramming uh, the whole night, the whole day leading up to trying to get as much uh, of the the course content into my head so I could regurgitate it onto the page as quickly as I possibly could. I, I still ended up passing those exams. I knew the content, but I didn't know that I knew the content. And so the experience was vastly different. I would come out of the exam drenched in sweat as opposed to with a smile on my face after HSC exams. You see, there is a difference between knowing something and knowing that you know something. And friends, the same thing is true when it comes to Jesus. There is a difference between knowing Jesus and knowing that you know Jesus. Knowing Jesus is the way to receive eternal life, isn't it? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you know Jesus and you're in a relationship with him, you'll live forever. You will be welcomed into his perfect world on judgment day. You will be spared from his anger forever. That's if you know Jesus. But if you don't know Jesus, then you will be rejected on judgment day the door will be closed to God's perfect kingdom and you will be shut out of it. You see, knowing Jesus is the way to be safe for eternity. But there's a difference between knowing Jesus and knowing that you know Jesus. Uh, Knowing that you know him doesn't make a difference to your eternal destiny. You will still be safe either way as long as you know Jesus, but it does make a big difference to your experience here and now. You can, in this life, be confident, be relaxed, be happy if you know that you know Jesus. Now, it is possible, friends, to know Jesus, to have your sins forgiven by him, to have that hope of heaven in your heart, but to be unsure that you really are a Christian. There are some people who are plagued with those kind of doubts, those questions. How do I know that I really am a Christian? How do I know that I know Jesus? Some of you might be plagued with those questions. But even if you're not, I'm confident that you will know a Christian who is. It's a very common doubt to struggle with. Now, the Apostle John is writing to people who are struggling with that question. The question of how do I know whether I really am a Christian? How do I know that I know Jesus? Uh, do you remember last week we had a quick look at what John's purpose in writing the letter was in chapter 5 verse 13. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John is writing to people so that they would know that they know Jesus. Now the question is, how does John do that? How does he help us to know that we know? Well, it's one unconventional answer, I think. The way that John does this for us and for his first audience is with a series of tests, kind of self administered tests, if you like, to help us to diagnose whether we truly know Jesus. And in the passage that we just had read for us, we actually see a few of the tests that John administers, if you like, uh, for us to to self-diagnose. In verse 3, you notice that there's kind of a a test which relates to obedience. Verse 3, we know that we've come to know him. Catch that. We know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. There's there's a test for you to know if you know Jesus. There's another one actually down in verse 9, uh, a test relating to whether you love other Christians, verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. So there's the test, go and diagnose yourself. Are you in the darkness or are you in the light? Do you know Jesus or not? These tests from John help us to know. There's actually one more test as well in our passage today. And it's in verses 15 to 17. It's a test relating to whether or not we love the world. And that's actually, those verses are the only verses I'm going to be focusing on today. Uh, Because the other tests, the test of obedience and the test of love for brothers and sisters, they're going to come up again throughout the letter of 1 John. And so I'm not going to uh, investigate those with you today. We're going to leave them for later weeks. Today, we're just going to be thinking about the test Of whether or not we love the world. And so if you want to know whether you know Jesus then it's a very simple test according to these verses. Just one question and here it is. Do you love the world? Do you love the world? That's the question. And if you answer yes to that question, then you failed the test, says John. And the love of the Father is not in you, he says in verse 15. It's very simple. If you love the world, then you can know that you don't know Jesus. Now, that is a very blunt thing to say, isn't it? Um please don't shoot the messenger here because all I'm trying to say is exactly what John is saying in verses 15 to 17. John says, If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Now, I think that probably needs a bit of clarification because if you're anything like me, then your mind is probably trying to find a loophole here, trying to figure out exactly what does John mean and does it actually apply to me? So let's let's think a little bit about what he means with this question of whether you love the world. Let me start by saying what John doesn't mean here. Uh, John doesn't mean that we should just be indifferent to the people in the world. Uh, no, the rest of the Bible is very clear. Actually, that the people in the world are people whom we are to love. That much is clear. Uh, John doesn't mean when he says "don't love the world." He de- he's not referring to kind of the physical creation, God's you know planet Earth. He's not telling us to despise that. No, again, the Bible is very clear that this world is a beautiful gift from God for us to enjoy and to receive with thanksgiving. Now, when when John is using that word. World here, he's basically talking about the darkness, which he's already mentioned back in chapter one. He's talking, I think, about a way of living and thinking that rejects God and that doesn't acknowledge God's standards for good and evil and truth. John is saying that you cannot love God and love that way of living which hates God. I mean those things are obviously mutually exclusive, aren't they? In the words of Jesus, you can't serve two masters. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them, says John. That's the test. And do note with that question as well, that the the question is not you know, Have you ever loved the world? Have you ever been tempted uh, to, to love the ways of this world, the world's way of thinking and living above Jesus? Have you ever been tempted? No, that's not the question, because if that was the question, uh, none of us would pass, right? Uh, the question is really asking, I think, whether you can see in your life over time that Jesus has become more important to you than the things of this world. Is there evidence of that? In your life. Or perhaps a simpler way of thinking about it is to make it a multiple choice test and to ask you if you had to choose, do you love the world or do you love Jesus? If if we forced you to make that decision, then which one would you choose? Well, if you choose the world, John says the love of the Father is not in you. If, if you consistently go toying about with the world's way of living then to be frank, John says that you have no right to call yourself a Christian. Uh, Maybe you are, God knows, uh, but you have no right, in fact, to the assurance, uh, that security, that knowledge that you do truly know God. If you toy around with the world, then, then that's not your privilege to have that assurance. I think that's the essence of what John is saying in these verses. And to be frank, I find that very confronting. And so I suspect that a lot of you do too. Because the, the truth is that dabbling in the world's way of thinking and living, uh, living in a worldly kind of manner, is a serious problem for Christians in the Western world, isn't it? Let's be honest here. There are studies done all the time. Study after study seems to show that the lifestyles of professing Christians in the West are really not all that different from non-Christians, sadly. According to these studies, we're just as materialistic as non-Christians. We're just as sexually immoral as non-Christians. We're just as self-focused as non-Christians. Christians Christians are just as likely to divorce as non-Christians. Our spending patterns are strikingly similar to the world around us. Now, we know, don't we, that we should look different to the world around us. But too often, it's just like looking, the world looking into a mirror when they see a Christian. Now, as, as blunt as John is being in these verses, John's intention with this test here is not to rattle the Christians and to make them doubt. No, actually quite the opposite. What he's trying to do is, is he's confident that they do know God. And we skipped over it, but that's what that little poem in verses 12 to 14 is really all about. Now, do you notice in those verses what is repeated there in 12 to 14? Look in uh, verse 13. John says, Fathers, you know him who is from the beginning. Verse 14, Dear children, you know the Father. Fathers, you know him who is from the beginning. John's in no doubt that these Christians who he is writing to really do know God. And those should be comforting words for people who are doubting whether they really know God. And John has put that little poem right here in the midst of these tests in chapter 2 because he knows how easy it would be to come away discouraged and he doesn't want that. And I want to say to you friends, I don't want that for you today as we think about this test together. And so let me just say up front, in in the style of John himself here, that if you're a part of WBC, and if I know you personally, then I am confident that you know the Father. I can say that because if you didn't know the Father, I would have already told you that. I would have already told you I had concerns about whether you truly are a Christian or not. And so what I want to say, friends, is that we can wrestle with verses 15 to 17 with confidence. We can wrestle with it assured that, yes, we do truly know God, without fear of what we might discover as we do some of this honest self-evaluation. So let's dive into the passage and let's notice that John, like the good pastor that he is, he doesn't just kind of give us that test and then leave it at that he helps us out and he gives us actually two reasons why it would be a good idea to not love the world. He doesn't just say don't love the world, but he helps us to not love the world. So I want to show you the the first reason, and it's there in, in verse 16. Let's read verse 16 again. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Well, the The argument here is about origins. Uh, John is saying, realize where these things come from and therefore avoid them. And so he lists those three things there which characterize this worldly attitude. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And those are a little bit vague. So what is John talking about there? What does he mean? Uh, I think... In essence, John is talking about cravings for things that you don't have, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, as well as pride in the things that you do have, the pride of life. He's talking about a kind of a self-indulgent, self-serving, self-promoting, self-gratifying kind of lifestyle. And John says that's characteristic of the world's way of thinking. And John wants us to know that that way of thinking, he wants us to know where it comes from, and he says it doesn't come from God. Uh, I only found out quite recently that jelly uh, is made using the kind of the ground-up animal byproducts, like skin and bones and ligaments and cartilage and that sort of thing. Um, and when I found out about that, that, that's what goes into making you know that kind of tasty, sweet, wobbly jelly... It was almost enough, I think it probably is enough actually, to turn me off from ever eating it again. Now, uh, if you're a vegetarian and uh, I'm breaking that news to you that's where jelly comes from, then I'm awfully sorry uh, because you probably won't be able to enjoy jelly the same way again, knowing where it comes from, right? But that is essentially what John is doing here. He's unmasking the origin of this way of living for us, these worldly attitudes, so that the Christians will see right through them and that they will lose their appeal. And so, so where does that impulse uh, to, to live for and to serve yourself come from? Well, it doesn't come from your father who loves you, says John. No, it comes from the world, the world that hates God, the world that is in rebellion against God, the world that is, is governed by the devil, according to John. Do you notice that, that, that trio of characteristics, how they kind of echo the temptation of the Garden of Eden? Uh, I think John is being quite deliberate here, kind of casting our minds back to Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember when the devil is tempting Eve in the garden and it's written that when Eve sees the fruit, she sees that it's good for food, lust of the flesh, and pleasing to the eye, lust of the eyes, and desirable for gaining wisdom, pride of life, and so she takes some and eats it. And, And John is deliberately echoing that kind of mentality, that language here. And of course, what is on offer is always a lie. It's the oldest lie in the book. It looks good to Eve, but it leads to death and to destruction and to broken relationships and to hell. And so, Christian, if you see something Uh, on the shelf that is packaged up and you flip it over and you look at the label and it says uh, made in hell Uh, it says created by Satan if you're a Christian and if you've got any sense then you will avoid it won't you So John is saying here, well, let me unmask for you the desires that you find around us. These are the kind of desires that that we encounter every day in our world, the normal kind of desires in our culture. Uh, Those desires that say, well, I I must have that thing, that thing that I want, I must get it. And actually, I, I, I mustn't restrain myself from getting that thing that I want, because if I do that then it will cause me some kind of psychological harm. To say no to yourself, our culture would say, it's almost dangerous. You must have what you want. You must have what you see. I mean, think about the, the entire advertising industry is built on that kind of model. The idea that you see something and you want it, and millions of dollars are spent then to convince you to get the thing that you want, to take it, to pursue it. And so we are taught to think day after day, I must have that thing that I want. I must have that thing that I see. And, and when I get that thing, then I'll be happy. Then I will be able to, to take pride in my life. Then I'll really be someone. Then that thing will make me special. We are taught to think I, you know, I will be impressive if I get those designer clothes, if I get that new iPhone, if I get that, that new car, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, whatever it might be, that that is what will make us significant. John says, just realize, friends, that attitude it doesn't come from God. No, it's made in hell. It's designed by Satan. That's where it comes from. And so if you know Jesus and you love Jesus, then avoid it because that's where it comes from. That's its origin. The second reason that John gives us to avoid this worldly kind of way of living is not because of where it comes from, but actually because of where it's going. Have a look in verse 17. It says, The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So the question here is, why would you bother spending your life and chasing after things that are not going to last for very long? Uh, let's say that you uh, want to get the latest iPhone. I think a new one was actually just announced this week. You know, It's very easy to see the appeal of such a, a, a beautiful and powerful piece of technology. And, and millions of people around the world are going to lust after this thing. They're going to crave for it. And so if, if you're one of those people who is going to take out a small mortgage to buy that new iPhone, well, just realize this. Realize that that eventually you will scratch that phone, you might even drop that phone, and it it won't stay pristine for very long. Uh, Realise that a new one is gonna come out next year and it won't be the desirable thing for all that much longer. And besides all of that, realise that this world is going to burn and perish, and I'm pretty sure that iPhones aren't gonna be needed in the new creation anyway. Think about where this world is going, friends. Do you think? that 10,000 years from now, you will care what phone you had here on Earth? In fact, do you think you'll even care 100 years from now? On the time scale of eternity, uh, these desires that we battle every day are very brief, aren't they? Do you think you'll care a 1,000 years from now how beautiful your clothes were here? Do you think you'll care how luxurious your house was? Do you think you'll care how magnificent your holiday destinations were? There's a very famous book that came out in 2008 called A Hundred Things to Do Before You Die. Uh, this life is a short journey, the book says. How can you make sure that you fill it with the most fun and that you visit the coolest places on Earth before you pack those bags for the very last time. And so the book promises wisdom, doesn't it? Here's how you should live your life in light of the fact that one day you're going to die. And it offers for you 100 travel destinations and experiences uh, for you to do and travel to and engage in before you die. It includes uh, going to the Academy Awards. Uh, It says that you should experience New Year's Eve in Times Square in New York. Uh, You should go to Carnival in Brazil, you should go to Oktoberfest in Germany, and you should go to a Turkish oil wrestling competition. Now, I'm not really sure what that last one's all about, but I think I would probably scrap it down to 99 things to do before you die, because that doesn't sound very appealing to me. Uh, The author of that book, a guy called Dave Freeman, tragically died at age 47 after he fell and hit his head in his own home. He had done less than half the things on his own list. Now, I don't know whether Dave Freeman was a Christian, but I do know that a life that is lived in pursuit of those sort of things does not make any sense when you know that this world and its desires are passing away. Because we know that the clock is ticking, isn't it? that day by day we are all getting closer to eventually packing our bags for the last time and going to face our destiny. And so none of those things will last, says John. They're passing away. In fact, even the desires for those things are passing away. So it, it really is not going to kill you, friends. And I, I want I want to say this loud and clear. It's not going to kill you to say no to a desire which, even in relatively few years, you won't even care about anymore. One of the uh, the saddest stories, I think, in the Bible is of a guy named Demas. He's not a very well-known character in the Bible. He only appears a couple of times. But his life serves as a pretty sad warning uh, for people like you and I who love God. Demas first shows up in Colossians chapter 4, Uh, where he's described as working alongside Luke. And he's listed there, along with uh, almost 10 other people, uh, for their faithful service to Christ. Sounds like a great guy. And we don't hear anything else about Demas until actually 2 Timothy chapter 4, which is one of the Apostle Paul's last letters that he ever wrote. Uh, Paul's writing that letter as he's awaiting his own execution, his own martyrdom for Jesus. And, And Paul writes there in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Simply that Demas has deserted me because he loved this present world. You can almost hear the heartbreak in Paul's words as he writes that, can't you? Friends, don't be like Demas. Don't love this world because of where the desires of this world come from. They don't come from God. Don't love this world because of where the desires of this world are one day going. They are passing away. Instead, verse 17, invest your life in doing the will of God, in serving him, in obeying him. John writes, you will live forever if you do that. And as you live that way, as you serve and obey God, as you, as you live out his will, And as you resist the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, as you say no to those temptations to live for yourself, what you will see is more and more evidence in your life that proves that you are the real thing, that proves that you really do know Jesus. John, you see, he wants us to be able to look back on evidence in our lives to look back on sacrifices that we have made for Jesus, to look back on temptations that we have resisted for Jesus and said no to. He wants us to see a track record that proves that we really are the real deal, that we really do know God. And so as we see that, to have the peace and the confidence that comes with that knowledge. Now, as, as we've thought about this test today, uh, I have no doubt that there will be some people who will recognise that they don't pass the test. Yeah, it's quite possible, actually. There'll be some of you who are quite convicted and quite freaked out at this point and who are thinking to yourself, gee, I don't even know whether I'm really a Christian or at least I, I don't know whether there's enough evidence in my life for me to be confident that I really am a Christian. And so if that's you, and if you fail... This test, then please understand that the solution is not for you to just kind of study harder to pass this test. It's not for you to kind of whip yourself up into some religious kind of energy and to just give away more things or to say no to some desires in the world. As good as those things are for you to do, uh, no, remember that uh, working hard to pass this test would be a bit like, you know, getting a rash all over your skin and trying to sort of deal with it by covering yourself in makeup so you can't see it anymore, that doesn't actually solve the issue. There's something that you actually need to really cure the issue. Because remember that this is a test to see whether you know Jesus. And so if you fail this test, then the cure is to go back to knowing him. That's the solution. Come to know The Lord Jesus, who John says gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Uh, The one who would bear God's anger in our place uh, to suffer for the wrongs that we have done. Come to know Jesus, who John says is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that includes our worldliness. If you know him then your life will begin to change and you will begin to see evidence. You will align yourself with God's will. You will say no to the desires of the world. And as you see that happening in your life, then, friends, you can know that you know. Let me pray for us. Kind Father, we thank you that you have loved us. We thank you that you've sent your son, Jesus, the one who perfectly loved you and loved his neighbors as himself. He is the only one who can say that he's done that. And so we thank you that his perfect obedience is now ours by faith. God, we do pray that you would please, as we know Jesus, please transform us through him and through the power of your spirit. Help us to see in our lives evidence of that transformation that you are doing in our lives so that we can be confident that we do truly know you. We long for that peace and that comfort and that reassurance knowing that you are our Father, that we do truly know you, that our sins truly are forgiven. So I pray you'd please grant that to us today. I pray also, Lord, for anyone who's listening or watching who is sure at this point that they do not yet truly know Jesus. Please would you bring them towards your son. Help them to put their trust in him and in him alone as the only one who will make them right with you. ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.